way I see it, Barry, this should be a very dynamite show. people out there how you doing one moment please relax please relax no we're not going to play Gregory Peckery I wish we were but we can't do that one as soon as we've checked everything out the first song is going to be podcast number four uh, with Mark Atkinson hello Mark hey Mike how you doing and me, myself, Mike Genovese. And tonight, we're going to be uh, talking about Frank's orchestral music and um, taking that apart. And there's so much of it that we're probably going to have to break this one up into a, a, a couple of casts. One thing I want to say about the orchestral works of Frank before we get going is that just like his rock rock and roll pieces or his Sinclair pieces which were later on or his guitar solos any of that stuff it all it's all related um so we're going to be pointing out uh, how the themes reappear how pieces were developed um and how everything relates to everything in frank's world that's right, Mike. And as you've stated many times before, you can look at uh, Frank's work as one big piece that can be analyzed and broken down a million different ways. But for the sake of this podcast, we're going to zero in on Frank's orchestral works. And in order to do that, let's go back to the beginning. And the beginning in this case would be 1962 with the release of a movie entitled The World's Greatest Sinner. This movie was produced, directed, and starred an actor by the name of Tim Carey. Frank met Carey in 1961 and asked him if he could score the music for his film, which Carey uh, agreed to and Frank did. So to just give you a quick synopsis of the movie itself, the movie's about a, an insurance salesman played by Tim Carey uh, he goes through this midlife crisis, and this causes him to lose his job with the insurance company. And when he loses his job, he has a vision in which he begins to question death, and that man is God and heaven is here on earth. He then attends a rock concert where he develops a plan. Now his plan is he gets together with his gardener and forms his own rock band to spread his message. 
Through the band, he starts to gain followers and more power, which then allows him to form his own political party, which he entitled Internal Man Party, where people become superhuman beings and eventually gods. The character then puts on fake facial hair and changes his name to God. He is eventually convinced to run for president of the United States. He gets so swept up in his delusions that he begins to believe that he is God. He then challenges God to a showdown. Well, that's basically what the movie's about. When the movie was released in 1962, it was touted as the worst movie ever made. And Tim Carey, from the time it was released up until the day he died in 1994, was known to actually re-edit the movie several, several times. Following the release of the movie in 1962, the next time Frank was able to have his music performed was in 1963. It was Sunday, May 19, 1963, at 8.30 p.m., Mount St. Mary's College, Department of Music, presents the experimental music of Frank Zappa. It was in the little theater. Now, in the program notes, the, the program consisted of the following songs. Number one, variables two for orchestra. Number two, variables one for any five instruments. Then an intermission. Then number three, opus five for four orchestras. Number four, rehearsalism. And number five, three pieces of visual music with jazz group. And then there was a question and answer period. It's important to note that that's what the track listing was for the program that was handed out. However, the following is what was performed that night. Number one was piece number two of visual music for jazz ensemble and 16mm camera. Piano pieces from Opus 5. Collage number one for stringed instruments.
two fragments of the prepared tape to be used in Opus 5. And finally, Opus 5. Now, Frank claims that uh, this was the first time he had paid to hear his music played. I guess he can't, he scraped together about three hundred dollars to put on this concert that he that he put together. Is that right? I've never heard any of this stuff before, and it's very interesting. Um, so, what you're telling me is, uh, Frank was featured that particular night, or were there also other composers that played that night? So I, I'm assuming, from what I'm gathering here, they had composers' concerts, and what they did was they featured a a, a uh, student composer from the school. Frank wasn't going to the school, and he they featured his works on one night, and I guess he had to pay <laughs> pay 300 bucks to get him to do it. From what I can tell, yeah, that kind of that's what happened. So yeah, the the May 19th was Frank's and Frank's alone, and he did. Uh, the other one was on May 4th. Where it was two compo- the one I read at the beginning of the podcast, yeah, that was May fourth, and it's called the whole the whole thing I guess, which was a week or two weeks or whatever was music sets the mood for May at the Mount uh, Mount St Mary's College presents, and they did they they did this month of composers, and Frank was featured, but I think he was the only one that wasn't a student there, and when asked later about it, he said. In fact, I did pay once to hear my music played a long time ago. I scraped up about $300 to put on a concert at Mount St. Mary's College. It was a student group. I had to pay those damn kids to rehearse the music. They hated my stuff, but I didn't do any of that with the prospect of making money. Well, I'll tell you, you know, I have uh, a longer version. I have uh, maybe 20 to 30 minutes worth of music from that concert, and the only official release is about two minutes of that concert on the lost episodes from what I heard, you know, from what I can tell, they took it pretty seriously, even though they may have hated it. It sounded, it sounded pretty well executed. I want to mention something else. I, you say you have the program. Does it give any personnel? No. Okay. Well, the only, in that case, the only personnel that I know of is, um, Four, three people, uh, Philip Barnett, 
Peter Arcano on trumpet, and then Malcolm McNabb also on trumpet, who later on. Oh wow! Really? When yeah. yeah, he was there, and maybe that's where he met, uh, where they met, because then about ten years later on the uh, the Wazoo concerts and plus the albums. Uh, Malcolm was there, and, and we all know that uh, Malcolm is a tremendous player who uh, actually inspired Frank to write a very early uh, version of the Bebop Tango, and the piece of the music was called The, Ma- the Malcolm McNabb, and it later developed into the Bebop Tango, but that's how good a player he was, and you could hear that stuff on Wazoo and uh, also um, Imaginary Diseases. Just to add to the what Frank had th- had thought about that concert, um, besides what I had already said, he, Frank goes on to say maybe less than a hundred people showed up for it, but the thing was actually taped and broadcast by KPFK, which was a radio station. He goes, last year some guy in England somehow got a copy and sent me a cassette of it, but I haven't bothered to listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> I think to get some perspective on the concert itself and Frank's musical ideas and how we approached them at the time, it's a good idea to go back and listen to the question and answer period found at the end of the show. Here, there's some contained within, there's some great musical nuggets on how Frank approached music, how he approached writing music, and even how he wanted his music to be performed. Also, how he stuck by his approach and ideas right through to the end of his career. No, I'm not trying to be far out. I'm not trying to be hysterical. All I, it's, it's, in a way, it's a quite a purely intellectual thing on the Opus 5. Even though it may have sounded comical to a few of you, I can see we got a nice little laugh at the end of the piece. But the fact is that uh, there is quite a bit of thought when putting that piece together. And it took me a long time to figure out how, how to make it as loose as it sounded. And that was the intention all along, to make it sound that way. Not to make it sound hysterical, because that's only your interpretation of it. Maybe somebody else is going to agree, but... Yeah, I'm, I'm not accusing you of being facetious. I, you, may have, you may have felt that that, that uh, induced a certain amount of hysteria in you. But, to me, when I hear that, the only thing that I can say is that's the way I've always wanted the music to sound. <laughs> Nobody is, that's okay. (laughs) 
Music is any organized uh, pattern of sounds. This is not. You, by our definition, you said that it's the rhythms are supposed to be chaotic. Yeah. And one can answer one question. Yeah. And another, and the answer to the question about um, improvisation, you said that the, the chords are supposed to be uh, chaotic. So it's not organized. Oh, wow. how can you say that? If, if the conductor, <laughs> if the conductor is conducting from a, a chart which is a certain type of organization, if they're playing from parts, which are a certain type of organization, and if the improvisations are allowed at certain periods, specified on a schematic diagram, is that not organization? Well, where then is the structure? I mean, the structure is right on the... Did several times what the structure is No, I haven't been asked several times. Uh, uh, Dr. Duran asked me one time whether or not, what was the structure of the... Uh, the last piece that was played, the one in standard notation. The, do I have to tell you that's a sonata allegro? I mean, what difference does it make? It's got, it's got a shape to it. It's got a diagram that tells them when to play and when to be quiet and when to improvise. That's a structure. It doesn't have to be something that's been hanging around for five or six hundred years. Concert, and then you'll come back to the next one I have and you'll like it. <laughs> uh, in what regard do you consider what we call the great masters of the past music? Bach, Brahms, Beethoven, Schubert, I know, I know absolutely nothing about uh, any composers before the 20th century. I have a very unusual type musical background. It's practically nil. I taught myself, I taught myself what, uh, what I know, whatever that is, about music. And my own personal taste and what I listen to uh, do not include very much tonal music of that type. But I'll tell you what I do like. I'm a great fan of rhythm and blues, and I like rock and roll. <coughs> and I like folk music. But I don't like uh, Schubert, and I don't like Brahms, and I don't like things like that. I don't like Beethoven a whole lot. <laughs> First, um, the first long-playing album that I bought was The Complete Works of Edgar Varese, and I got that when I was about 14 years old. And that's what I grew up with musically. I had, uh, didn't even have a record player before that, and I wasn't listening to the radio, so you might say that I kind of started out uh, on the wrong foot. But uh, that's the answer to his question. Anybody else? Yes? Uh, <coughs> I would like a little more clarification for myself on your conversation of your previous number before the last one. In, uh, I think we all think of improvisations in terms of jazz fields, where there's a set beat or progression or a And uh, can you explain a little bit more about your 
how they improvise? Well, it's very simple. Uh, they're just turned completely free. No, uh, no lead of any sort? No. Well, during the improvisation, uh, the actual improvisation sections, when they aren't reading anything at all, they're just instructed to go. Just, uh, just turn themselves completely free and uh, try and avoid tonal passages was the only thing that I said to them uh, during the rehearsal. And I think they pretty well did that. Well, I may want it to come out approximately the same way it did tonight, but I don't see really how I could. Because in the first place, uh, it's, it's kind of a foolish uh, idea because after how I explained to you how the parts work, you just can't match the rhythms <clears throat> and you can't, uh, you can't duplicate the improvisations and you can't duplicate the spontaneity that you get. Well, uh, I'm thinking of, uh, in line with jazz, of course, because improvisation is a wonderful thing. I like it. It's a great idea. It's a good idea. It's a and what I'm getting at is when a group, a jazz group, improvises, they have an idea before they start. They had an idea. They had an idea of uh, what they were supposed to do before they started too. I told them what not to play. I told them what I didn't want to hear. Uh, it may sound kind of tyrannical, but the idea was that uh, we have these con conductors up here who are actually helping to compose the piece. The conductor in this instance is more than a conductor. He's assistant composer. And I have the, the total say-so over the other com assistant composers over how I want it to sound. All I'm trying to do with this group in Opus 5 is make them create a piece of music on the spot the way I would like to have it played. See, that's the whole idea of it. And when we were rehearsing, I just explained to them I didn't want any uh, scale practicing, and I didn't want any pulling around of that uh, sort, uh, and uh, playing of little tunes in there, things like that. Yes? Can you compose, I guess, because that's what you can use, um, any other music in what we've heard tonight, any other uh, radical things? Have I composed any other radical things? Well, I, no, I didn't mean it that way. Did you <laughs> Yes. Uh, you else? Yeah. I sold a record to Capital last last Friday, and you'll hear it on KFWB by next Friday. It's a rock and roll song, and uh, I make my living doing things like that. And it is quite a bit different than what you've heard tonight. The name of the song is "The Big Surfer." You can all go out and buy it. Yes, the song uh, "The Big Surfer." was uh, written, I think it was co-written with Paul Buff. They were writing some songs together at the same time, mostly surf music. Paul Buff is the guy that sold Frank the uh, studio in Cucamonga, Studio Z. Also, Mike, if we go back to the official release of excerpts from this concert, we can probably gleam a lot from that, can't we? Yeah, that clip, the one that's from... Um, the lost episodes from the, the concert in St. Mary's pretty much says it all because Frank was conducting the orchestra back then. And there's a point in the middle of that clip where it's just cacophony. 
is it gives chaos and but although there is a method to his madness you know he has to stop the orchestra and because it's really crazy and he says to the audience maybe i should tell you what we were doing So that's real early uh, stuff. That's, you know, 63, we're talking, and he didn't inform the mothers for a couple of years. And then, you know, that uh, especially in the early days, uh, 50 to 60% of the show was conducted by Frank. It was improvised, and um, that you know, is a good uh, thing to know that he was already doing that way back when. And also, you can hear the way he talks in front of an audience. He's very comfortable already, and he's not even 25 yet. What is he, 22, 23 at that point? So um, I can't say that I know that music really well, but it's a, it's a good uh, artifact because it's where it all started. Couple things. Uh, Matt, uh, Frank's appearance on Steve Allen when he played the the bicycle. <laughs> Helped him uh, get. Uh, this performance done at Mount St. Mary's College. Frank says that one of the nuns that had to be convinced was Sister Moira, Moira Jean, who still shakes her head when she thinks of the event. Frank also goes on to say there were some people who were in the orchestra that he's used on other albums where I used orchestral musicians. They've also appeared on Lumpy Gravy, a few of them, and I still keep in touch with them. So, Mike, is there any other big event that happened for Frank in 63? Yeah, at that at that time in '63 was when he got the the job to score the the, the film Run Home Slow. That helped him raise the money to um, purchase the studio, which became Studio Z in Cucamonga. That score, Run Home Slow, also um, contained bits of music that uh, appeared later on in in Frank's career. In particular, um, Duke of Prunes. (laughs) 
was one of the themes. And uh, also some of the other stuff, the, uh, the, the, the march and a few other things from that uh, the, the mothers would actually play in the, in the rock and roll setting. But that was at the same time, and uh, and that helped him buy the studio. And the studio uh, was where he would just they recorded twenty four hours a day because it was a new machine. It was five track, which was incredible at that time. And uh, some of the stuff they recorded there found its way onto Frank's albums, in particular Lumpy Gravy and a few other places. But uh, he was a fantastic arranger of orchestral music from an early age. And he did it all himself, right? All himself. And it was just, he went to the library and learned how to (laughs) write music. I've got a few quotes from some of the guys that actually did the show. They talked about the 63 performance. Malcolm McNabb says, In 1963, I performed in a concert at Mount St. Mary's College in Brentwood where Frank performed a piece supervising several subconductors. So there's four conductors uh, that were also conducting the pieces and fronting the ensemble with an amplified zither played with a soup spoon. Yes, it, it does credit Frank uh, on, on zither on the lost episodes. Okay, and Philip uh, Barnett, who played oboe, says, uh, I was playing in the college community orchestra part-time and I can only remember two other musicians, both friends of mine and students at MSM, Peter Akuro, trumpet, and Philip Barnett, oboe and English horn. They were multiple conductors and the musicians were encouraged to get other sounds out of their instruments by any means possible. Front and center was Frank playing an amplified zither with a soup spoon in a solo role. I really can't remember who else was in the orchestra. I guess it was a student orchestra. Well, it was there. It was the, the point is, is it was already there. His brother Bobby, who just wrote a book that I can't get my hands on. It's it's sold out on um, Amazon. But I saw an interview, and he says from the age of twelve or thirteen, Frank was like an adult already. He was he was a, a genius back then. He, he he was so smart. And so, you know, we're talking about 23, 24 being impressed, you know, according to his brother and a few other people that, you know, Frank was was already established at the age of 13 and knew what he wanted to do. Yeah. Although it wasn't music at the time, it was explosives, but he was still pretty smart. Right. Um, so that's impressive. Thinking about what I was doing at 23 and 20. <laughs> exactly. Um, Lucy Shelton, who played flute. Are you familiar with that name? Nope, not at all. Lucy Shelton, she was a Pomona student who graduated in 1965, told me that she played flute on something that Frank recorded in Little Bridges. He was up in the balcony directing things. Uh, Lucy recalls, we had little scraps of paper with notes on them in front of us, and Frank yelled down, I want you to improvise. We're kind of in the key of E, but don't play any E's. (laughs) Lucy also performed with Frank in the late 70s and early 80s. Um a Varese tribute in New York as well. Uh, so, and, and it goes on. There's uh, David Scher, uh says some stuff. Don Preston says a few things. By the way, Don was not in that concert, but he does remember it being talked about. 
So after scoring the music for Run Home Slow, uh, what's the next project that Frank embarked on orchestrally? Uh, That would be Lumpy Gravy. The way that came about was maybe Frank... A few people at Capitol Records knew that Frank wrote orchestral music, or they were impressed with his arrangements on the Freak Out album, which were was all Frank. So Capitol approached Frank and said, why don't you write something orchestral for us? And this was the uh, spring of 1967. And so Frank wrote about a half an hour's worth of music, and it, well, no, that's not true. He wrote a lot more than that. But what got recorded uh, and and then mastered onto this first incarnation of Lumpy Gravy was about a half hour long. And they figured Frank and Capitol, since this was orchestral music and not rock and roll, it wasn't going to be any kind of conflict of interest with um, MGM. I believe it was March of 1967, and the reason why he decided to do this record with Capitol is because they figured there would not be a conflict of interest because it's not rock and roll, and MGM was the ones who had him signed for the rock and roll music, and it wouldn't be a problem. <laughs> However, after the, the, the album was recorded, mixed, and mastered, um, just orchestral music, MGM sued. And so there was a lawsuit and all kinds of ugliness going on for the better part of a year. In the meantime, that's when he recorded We're Only In It For The Money in the fall of 1967. And that's when he brought in the people to talk inside the piano. Well, somebody called me anyway, and, and I I, here I am. Here, somebody called me, and here I am, and I'm going to clean your piano whether you like it or not because it's my job. We she's can't. she's finished. Nobody's she can't. Gonna put me, we can't. You're not we're gonna, gonna put nobody's putting me away. We gotta put it. We're not gonna put me away. How are we gonna do it? We gotta put me away. Where do you think you are? Putting me away. What are we gonna do? Where are we gonna put her? Where are we gonna put the body? I'm always wrecked, you know. But I'm really gonna be more wrecked because of this motorcycle accident. And because you know what they do to you, and every everyone will know that I'm really ruined and won't be able to appear anywhere, you know. Barry, because Barry. Barry. Why should I be prejudiced against accordions? I'm going to call the NAAAA. Who are they? The National Association for the Advancement of Accordions. And he added uh, all kinds of uh, little snippets from old recordings, as I said before, from the Studio Z in Cucamonga back from 63, 64. Like the beginning of Lumpy Gravy, as we know it, is called the Lumpy Gravy theme now. And um, that actually was recorded uh, as a piece of surf music back in 63. And the last, thing you, the last thing you hear on the album is an early version of Take Your Clothes Off When You Dance.
which before it became take your clothes off when you dance was a, a few other things one of them was i'm so happy i could die or something like that and he also just to drive the engineers crazy had little bits of tape 15 seconds here 30 seconds there just taped all over the tables and walls in the studio and he just randomly put them all together these guys had a heck of a time editing that album but it was the way frank wanted it and so it became a completely different animal than it was when it was originally conceived eventually verve uh, or mgm and capital worked out their differences and i really don't know the details of the lawsuit or anything like that or the settlement but frank was able to release the album in i think uh may 13th actually may 13th 1968 was when it when it finally got released so it's funny lumpy gravy was started before we're all in it for the money and was finished after we're all in it for the money so they're kind of simultaneous that's why on one of the albums it says is this phase one of lumpy gravy is this phase two of we're only in it for the money and there's actually some music that's on both there's that little theme when the guy says oh geez we have to go through this again You'll hear that right at the end of Mother People on We're Only Here for the Money and then also somewhere in the middle of Lumpy Gravy itself. Do you mind if I rhyme off really quickly the musicians on the Oh, on the yeah, album? yeah, because that's important. Yeah, so on piano, Paul Smith, Mike Lang, Lincoln, Mayorga, and Peter Jolly. Drums were Johnny Guerin, Frankie Cap, and Shelley Mann. Percussion was Emil Richards, Gene Estes, Alan Estes, Victor Feldman. Kenneth Watson, Thomas Poole. Uh, these are all heavy studio guys, by oh, yeah. the way, at the time. Very heavy. Yep. Uh, Woodwinds, Ted Nash, Jules Jacob, John Rotella, Bunk Gardner, Don Christlieb, Gene Cipriano. And French of course, Ho- Go Bunk. Ahead. Yep. Of course, Bunk, you know, became yep. a mother. Yep. French Horns, Arthur Mayab, Vince, Vincent DeRosa, Richard Parisi, Arthur E. Briegleb, David A. Duke, and George F. Price. Trumpet, Jimmy Zito. Trombone, Kenneth Schroyer, Lou McCreary. Guitars, Jim Helms, Tommy Tedesco, Tony Rizzi, Tony Rizzi, Al Viola, Dennis Budimer. Bass, Bob West, John Balcom, Jimmy Bond, Lyle Ritz, Chuck Berghoffer. Strings, Sid Sharp, Alexandra Colton, Tibor Zelig, Ralph Schaefer, Bernard Kundel, William Kurach, James Getzoff, Arnold Belnick, Leonard Malarski, Harold Ar- A- Harold Ares, Jerome J. Reisler, Philip Goldberg, Leonard Selick, Harry Hyams, Joseph DeForce, Jerome A. Kessler, Raymond J. Kelly, Joseph Saxon, Jesse Urich, uh, Jesse Ehrlich, and Harold G. Bemko. And chorus was Louis the Turkey, Ronnie Williams, Dick Barber, Foon the Younger, Roy Estrada, another mother, Spider, Motorhead, another mother, Gil, 
um, All Night John, The Other John, Cal, which is Cal... Um, Cal Schenkel. Thank you. Let's yeah. be He's uh, the he artist. Yeah. Pumpkin, Larry Fanoga, Monica, Jimmy Carl Black, the Indian in the group. Also, Sammy Harold, Charlie Bruce. And there you have it. Just a couple of things in there. A few things. Um, if I can go back, let's see. On the tr- uh, trombone, Ken Schroyer. He went on to play with the uh, Wazoo. Um, years oh, later. Pick out names. Yeah, that, well, I'm uh, just looking at a few yeah, names. Yeah, that's great. On guitar, Tommy Tedesco was part of a studio, uh, a studio band called The Wrecking Crew, and his son actually has just come out with a movie. It's an excellent movie. You can watch it on Netflix, as by the way. Uh, and The Wrecking Crew was the studio musicians that were hired for every uh, pop album back in the day in the '60s. They played on everything. everything. Yes, I've heard of them. Right. Yeah, yes, I have. I wonder if uh, Vince DeRosa, the French horn player, is with that group because um, Vince DeRosa, you know, look, 60s and 70s, he's the French horn player on every album there is, whether it be Sinatra or whoever. So in the band called The Wrecking Crew were two musicians uh, on guitar, Tommy Tedesco, and on percussion, Emil Richards, who were both on the Lumpy Gravy sessions. And Emil tells a great story that he and Tommy on the session were constantly putting Frank down based solely on his appearance. They all felt that he couldn't possibly know what serious music was all about. And when Frank pulled out the music and all the and handed out all the charts, uh, all the classical musicians on the session became very snobby and stated emphatically that the music was unplayable. So Frank responded by asking, uh, can you at least try to play it? Everyone just laughed at Frank and behind his back were putting him down, again based on his appearance. No one even wanted to touch the music. So Frank then said, if I pick up my guitar and I play your part, can I prove to you that it's playable? They all said, it's impossible and definitely not playable. So Frank went, went, went over and picked up his guitar and started playing the charts. And Tommy... Tedesco and Emil went up behind him and said, that son of a bitch, he's playing the music. And immediately they respected Frank and got all the other musicians on board for the session. Uh, A second funny thing that happened was Frank uh, wrote a passage of music and asked Tommy Tedesco if he could play it faster than Emil could on xylophone. And Tommy replied, yes, he could easily. So Emil yelled, no way, you can't play it faster than I can. And they both put up a bet to see who could play it faster. So Frank said, why don't both of you play it together as fast as you can play it? So they did, and each time trying to, they, were out, they were trying to out, outdo each other. So Frank said, wait a minute, let me turn the tapes on. So he recorded it, and then when the album finally came out, Frank sped up the section in question. As far as um, things that showed up later on in, in, in Frank's uh, career, there's there's only a couple of short things. Uh, of course, the Oh No theme.
which could very well be the theme of Lumpy Gravy. I mean, it it uh, comes back in, in lots of different variations throughout the entire album, but it wasn't called Oh No at the time, but it became that uh, later on. And that basically starts off the album right after the surf music. There's also um, some stuff that was taken from the Run Home Slow oh. score that was not on the album, but you can hear it on Lumpy Money, all the outtakes. There's some. Uh, there's a unison thing, and there's a few other uh, trumpet solos and things like that that ended up uh, nowhere except for on these outtakes. Mm-hmm. And then... Close to the end of the album is uh, an early version of King Kong. But that's really about it. Um, when we get to the next batch of orchestral music, uh, the, the themes are completely, and I'm talking about the, um, the uh, stuff that appeared on Ahead of Their Time, the themes are completely different. Nothing even pertains to the Lumpy Gravy stuff. And, and once again, with the story we just told, here's another example of Frank having to fight it's unbelievable to fight to, to you know to get his music out. It just it's un it baffles me. Even even the freakout sessions. <laughs> He showed up and, and somebody leaned over and said, oh, looks like the beatnik here has written some music. And then they started to play the arrangements, which the arrangements on Freak Out are very, very good for a self-taught musician. They're nothing spectacular, but it's good stuff and it uh, it works. And then they became, you know, they, mm-hmm. they as always, they gained respect for him after they saw what he could do. But right. yeah, particularly in the beginning of his career, Frank was always... Always had to convince himself. Uh, had had to convince people to take right. him seriously. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Okay, what's next on our list, Mike? Uh, the next thing I think should be ahead of their time, which was released in 1993. But the concert was recorded on October 25th, 1968, at the Royal Festival Hall in London. Now, what happened was Frank had been simultaneously touring and composing orchestral music. And finally, he had, uh, I don't know, maybe six or seven pieces under his belt, and they were ready for performance. So Frank always says that things are more appealing to people when there's a story or a plot involved. So rather than just take a rock and roll concert and proceed it with some orchestral stuff. Here, I've written some orchestral stuff. And then, you know, they sit there and... Um, saw their way through a couple of pieces, and then the rock and roll concert happens. He had the idea to put a story behind the the, the, the pieces, 
that involved the Mothers of Invention, so it would be funny and entertaining. And that became the concert. It's it's tough to talk about the pieces because they all they're they're named differently. Uh, well, like there's stuff the, like there's important pieces like Holiday in Berlin and okay, King Kong yep. and Help Him a Rock, like things like that. Pound for a Brown, they're they're all important because they come in. Yeah, well, later. Pound for a Brown actually is is not done by the orchestra. That's done by the rock band. <laughs> But there's an interesting story about that. Um, that was originally a string quartet that Frank wrote in 1958. Really? Yes, absolutely. And this, if somebody can either verify it or tell me I'm wrong, but I've heard also it was around that same time that Frank wrote an early in- incarnation of Envelopes. Envelopes supposedly dates as far back as 1958 or 9. Okay, so... Oh, okay. Yeah. But you mentioned um, Holiday in Berlin... Which is uh, sung by Roy Estrada when he's uh, supposedly auditioning for the Sirius Band, and he he sings the little mid mid melody there. But that's not performed by the group. The group performs a couple of pieces, which when they were originally released in 1984 on the Mystery Disc, they had names like Piece Number One, Piece Number Two, or you know. But uh, when the album was released in 1993. Uh, ahead of their time he gave them different pieces but basically you've got um okay the beginning of the piece called progress which is the play when frank goes we're doing a play and uh the play called progress talks about how um the serious musicians in the group don't want the shitty musicians they want to throw them out and 
so on and so forth. And it opens up with a little theme that goes like this. That uh, eventually made its way into bogus pomp. It never appeared in 200 motels or any other place. It made it, it, it made it into the orchestral piece, bogus pomp. Yeah, then that's not the orchestra, though. That's just the mothers, um, the talented mothers, quote unquote. Uh, I think uh, I think Underwood was on clarinet, and uh, I really don't know exactly for sure. And 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 Bunk Gardner, fantastic reed player. And then when the uh, play starts, the first thing to happen is, oh, let's see. The first piece is called Like It or Not, I think. eventually got into 200 motels and I think it was called redneck eats and that includes the thing called piano drum duet and uh, that can be found on volume five of uh, you can't do it on stage anymore and it's basically written for electric piano and drums but here it's scored for this the small orchestra the members of the uh, the orchestra uh, so there's that little theme and later on, they play uh, some themes that later became the Tuna Fish uh, Ballet, which takes up a lot of side one from 200 Motels. And um, then when the whole thing is over, the closing theme is a piece called What's the Name of Your Group?
which was uh, taken out of the score to 200 miles. It was cut from the movie. And uh, but it wasn't none of these things were called what they were back then. They were just little pieces of music with no titles. And so those are the three themes that I can think of right away that made its way. Uh, and then there was some music in there that never got played anywhere else ever again. So going jumping down. So the Orange County lumber truck and prelude to the afternoon of a sexually aroused gas mask were released on weasels, right? Uh. Well, yes, parts of parts, yeah, because they were edited down for the Weasels okay. album. Okay, and then Holiday in Berlin also appears on Burnt Weenie, but it's not the same performance. No, right. Okay, so that t- ties in. Th- so this indirectly ties into those those two those two albums, um, and then you know, uh, well, King Kong, Help I'm a Rock, all those made many appearances later on. Oh so, yeah. Do you, okay, is that any more you want to say about that? Uh, no, that's all I can think of as far as the music that found its way somewhere later on. If you want to see how Frank, um, how Frank <laughs> molded and manipulated early mothers, get the movie Uncle Meat. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's, it's it's not an easy watch, but it's a great watch. I absolutely love it. Just watching him. He's he's like an evil scientist up there doing what he does, you know, and manipulating everyone, and and it's great. It's great to watch, and I also love. And maybe you can answer this question. In the, okay, so just to give the listeners a quick synopsis of what it looks like, you have like a, a, a stage that's set up with with a rock band, and and if you're facing the stage, Frank is is to the right, and then there's the drums and the percussion, and then there's a. Underwood on piano, correct? The big black grand piano to the left. And then behind Underwood, there's like a, a small mini kind of orchestra, correct? Yes, yes, okay. yes. Now, a couple questions. One, the orchestra comes out with all this stuff painted on their face. Okay, what is that? It uh, is like war paint, I guess, to, <laughs> to uh, um, set them aside from the rest of the untalented people that's the because some of the mothers some of the i think the talented mothers have the war paint right it's right. for people who are good musicians and you know <laughs> motorhead and roy they're not good musicians so they're, they're not allowed into the uh, elite group so okay. but then um just to tie in uh something before we get to 200 motels because a lot of this music found its way into that score um the holiday in berlin that theme became uh, Would You Like a Snack on um, 200 Motels and also The Overture, the thing that opens up right. the entire... Uh, yeah. yep. and, and that uh, was performed as far back as 68 or maybe even 67. I'm not sure, but that's how that ties in. Okay, really quick, the musicians on uh, Ahead of Their Time are Frank Zappa, guitar vocals, Jimmy Carl Black, drums, Roy Estrada, bass guitar, Don Preston, electric piano, Bunk Gardner, tenor, Bunk Gardner, tenor saxophone and clarinet, Ian Underwood, alto saxophone and piano, Euclid James, Motorhead Sherwood, baritone sax, tambourine, Arthur Dyer, Trip III, drums and percussion, and members of the BBC Symphony Orchestra. Yeah, 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 Billy. 
Well, folks, that wraps up podcast number four, a focus on Frank Zappa's Classical Works, part one. Both Mike and I want to thank you for listening, and as always, if you have any questions, corrections, or if you were fortunate enough to see the lineup of Frank's band during the era we were discussing, please let us know at zappapodcastmike at yahoo.com and zappapodcastmark, that's Mark with a C, at yahoo.com. For this particular podcast, we would like to hear from you if you were fortunate enough to attend any performance of Frank's classical works. Ladies and gentlemen, on our next podcast, to get prepared, you need to make your way over to iTunes or Zappa.com. Grab the FC album, Roxy and Elsewhere, and Roxy by Proxy. Also grab the film, Roxy the Movie. That will be the focus of Podcast 5. So as always, thanks for listening, and good night.